Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and we are back on this episode to talk about basic income, not only because our Liberal Caucus just prioritized, first overall, a policy resolution calling for a guaranteed basic income, but because I'm joined by NDP MP Leah Gazan to talk about her work and her advocacy through Motion 46 that calls for a guaranteed, livable, basic income. Now, Leah was first elected in October. She has a history of human rights advocacy, and she is passionate about a guaranteed livable basic income as a centerpiece of guaranteeing human rights to everyone in Canada. Leah, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Nathaniel. Really happy to be here today. You, on August 12th, introduced Motion 46 into the House of Commons. Explain to us, what is Motion 46? Well, it's a motion in support of a guaranteed uh, livable basic income. One of the things we've learned from the CERB is that government actually does have the resources. We saw a CERB roll out in a matter of a couple of weeks, but very often has lacked the political will to do so. I represent the third poorest riding in the country. You know, as the pandemic has persisted, I have witnessed declining mental health. Uh, I'm working with families that literally were one paycheck away from being on the streets that are now living in shelter or in hotel rooms, you know, because they no longer have accommodations. This is a human rights matter. Our charter, you know, affirms people's right to live in dignity and with human rights. That is not happening in this country. Certainly, we see that in First Nations communities. We see it all throughout urban centres, small towns, and we know with increased rates of unemployment as a result of the pandemic that people need to be looked after. So that's why I proposed the motion in consultation with Basic Income Canada, Basic Income uh, Manitoba, anti-poverty activists from from across the country. I'm a longtime anti-poverty activist, former Social Planning Council president uh, in Winnipeg for, for a number of years. This is a human rights matter. And we need to do better. And and we need to make sure that people have what they need to be looked after. The CERB has been a lifeline. I I have heard from constituents who have used those words to say, if it weren't for the CERB, I don't know what I would have done. Of course, there are gaps even within the CERB. So the EI system wasn't fit for purpose. The federal government quickly rolled out the CERB, and and I'm thankful that they did. But even there, there are some gaps for folks who maybe didn't earn $5,000 in the previous 12 months or people who lost their job before March 15th. And while they didn't lose their job because of the pandemic, they are facing a very difficult labor market in the months and years ahead, and especially as we, we enter into a second wave here in Ontario. What in your view, is the guaranteed livable basic income in terms of an amount? In, in Motion 46, you indicated it would change between regions depending upon yeah. the cost of living. Do you have a sense of what it would be? Is it, is it like the CERB, $2,000 yeah. a month? Here's the thing. We know that depending on where you live, costs of living are very different. For example, it's more expensive in northern Manitoba than it is in Winnipeg. That's why part of the motion uh, in drafting it with brilliant minds like Sheila Regeer and Sid Frankel and folks from around the country looking at those regional differences. Um, in terms of, of the amount, those kind of details will come out in the wash in terms of costing and, and making sure that it's livable. But I think really critical to, to Motion for and I know the Liberals are showing some interest in a guaranteed livable income is paragraph five, which is that it must be in addition 
to current and future government support. We know that the social safety net is not adequate anymore. I know that you've mentioned that on Twitter, and in fact, to Nathaniel, that our social safety net is no longer adequate. We have seniors living in poverty. We now have students that, because they were not able to work, can't afford to, to go to school in the fall. Disabled persons who have been totally left out, not just during the pandemic, but historically. We know that there's increasing rate of domestic violence since the start of the pandemic. Women need to be able, and LGBTQ2S individuals need to have the resources to live in dignity and with safety. So my concern, even with the mention of the, I'm, I'm glad the Liberals are mentioning, and I hope it's not another electoral reform move as we look looking like we're going into to an election but we cannot get our social safety net we need to build on our social safety net to ensure those that do not have a livable income are provided with proper support i want to get to that question of streamlining programs and is this in addition to all income supports or some income supports rolled into it? But as a matter of party politics and caucus support, so certainly when we saw electoral reform on the agenda in an election, that was because the leader and the party and the leadership of the party overall, not just the soon-to-be prime minister, had decided that electoral reform was to be part of our agenda. In the case of uh, basic income, this was a process internal to our policy process heading into a convention in November. Six of us put forward basic income resolutions from different parts of the country. Goody Hutchings out in Newfoundland, uh, Rachel Bendayan and Annie Kutrakis from Quebec, uh, Julie Zerowitz, Yasmin Ratanzi and myself from the Toronto area, and all different iterations of a resolution that we then pulled together. And then this was prioritized from an anonymous voting process from all caucus members as the number one resolution out of dozens of resolutions that have been put forward. So there is, I, I can't say, you know, universal caucus support, but there's sufficient caucus support. It's yet to be determined how that translates into support from the leader's office and from the government. In the NDP, we've seen you have been a champion. I, I went on your website and I saw a number of your colleagues from Peter Julian to Taylor Bakarach and, and others who have said they really support this. Is the leader's office supportive of this? Is this an yeah. issue that, that Jagmeet Singh is going to take and run with? Just to, to let you know, like it was a private member's motion in response to needs in my riding. Uh, as I indicated, my riding is the third poorest. And quite frankly, I'm tired of, of seeing people in excruciating mental health pain struggling without support. I see it every day. It's They're my neighbors. I live right down from Main Street where I see the most violent human rights violations, some of the worst that I've seen in the country and urban centers. I'd like to let you know that that every person on the caucus has endorsed my motion. I know there's, I think, one or two that didn't send in sentences, but they did sign on to the motion, to second the motion. So Jagmeet Singh does support this motion. I can say that the leader's office or Jagmeet has, does support it, has not endorsed it, but is supportive of it. But the, the rest of the caucus Caucus has been very, very excited about it and, and certainly has publicly endorsed. I think we're at a critical juncture and what we do and the decisions we make and what we push forward right now, whether it be to tackle poverty and inequality 
to tackle the climate emergency, like I did with my uh, private members bill C-232, we need to take bold actions now. We're at a time when we are really dealing with life and death matters. And and the, the kind of ideas we put forward are critical. The other thing that I just wanted to mention, Nathaniel, uh, I was so grateful for your support of the motion because Human rights should never be a partisan issue. Human rights should just be human rights. We should never be debating minimum human rights ever in 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 any ever in the House of Commons. It should be a given. It's part of our constitution. You know, I've gotten cross party support from the Greens. Uh, certainly, uh, Liberals across the way. I even have a, a block member that uh, supported my motion. There are Conservatives who have a supported basic income, including Bruce Stanton, who's part of our joint uh, guaranteed income day of action that's going to be happening in October. Human rights are human rights. I think that's critical. So I'm glad to have my party support, like the caucus support, but I'm I'm really happy to see parties working together to advance human rights in this country. Well, I think it's critical when we look at these big picture issues, especially in a minority parliament, that we see parties and individual members of parliament working across party lines as much as reasonably possible to tackle the big issues of the day. And I would say ensuring that we are reinventing our social safety net through a basic income is one of those big ideas that we need to tackle. You're right, I think, to frame this in a human rights context and to say this is about guaranteeing dignity because obviously there are many different ways that government can respond to different situations and and different people have distinct needs, but no one, regardless of their background, should fall below a floor and and be facing poverty. And on that note, a quick clarification, because I get asked this question all the time, and UBI gets thrown out there all the time, but you are not talking about universal payments to everyone. This is no. effectively a minimum floor below which no one should fall to, so that no one's 100%. left. 100%. I mean, like, I don't need a subsidy, Nathaniel. I might if I don't get elected again, who knows what can happen <laughs> in life, right? Like, there's not a lot of job security in, the, in our business. But I don't need a subsidy. But there are so many people, uh, certainly in my riding and across the country, that need a subsidy. And, you know, seniors, I can't even believe that we live in a country as rich as Canada. And I have so many seniors that live in poverty in my riding. And let's not even forget intersectionalities. Like, a senior who is Indigenous. We know Indigenous people live at higher rates of poverty, who have a disability. When you compile all of that, that is where we see some of the worst levels of poverty. Yeah, so absolutely, it's not universal. You know, I've been very clear about my opinions around divesting from corporate welfare, taxing the ultra-rich, going after offshore tax havens, ending fossil fuel subsidy. You know, and taking that money and investing in people and changing or thinking around that. And that gets to the question of, in some respects, how do we pay for this? And, and I think you are right to pause first and to say, well, there will be time to lay out specific proposals. And this initial call is for us to have that serious debate and conversation, which I think is right. And hopefully we actually have time to do so because we've seen CERB now transition into an EI reform package that is going to mirror the CERB in many respects, a a slightly lower amount, $1,600, not $2,000, but it is going to be for the next 26 weeks as of the end of September. So we really have a 26-week period of time to lay specific proposals on the table and to debate them and to figure out a way forward. In terms of how we afford this, which is the ultimate question that that many will raise. You you mentioned some areas of finding new revenue sources for government. 
open question whether those revenue sources will be sufficient. There's also the question of, can we streamline existing benefits? And you've said over and above existing income supports, but I took that to mean income supports for distinct needs. So something like the Canada Workers Benefit, for example, which is a $2 billion expense right now, that could be rolled into a program like this. So I'll give you an example where the concern is. I, I know that I my motion particularly has gotten uh, wide support from the disability community across the country. Part of the reason is, is because of paragraph five, in addition to. So when the, the income study occurred in Ontario, it was a replacement of, and and that's the issue here. That That is the glaring issue here is that, you know, you can have a guaranteed income, but if you replace it, you take away those supports, you actually can make people poorer. And, you know, you specifically saw that very clearly with the disabled community. And we can't put a guaranteed livable income program in place, which makes people poor. We have to protect our social safety net. We have to build on this social safety net and we can't pay for it. Like Mincom, the income study in Manitoba actually found that, you know, a lot of the myths, people actually continue to work. Uh, people like working. But what it did costed a lot more money on the front end. Certainly, Senator Kempate has done much of this research on, on her end. But it's cost saving over time. Physical health improved, mental health improved, crime rates went down. So we know that there's higher costs in the front end. And then it just naturally has cost saving uh, measures because when you look after people, it's good economics. It also will allow us to keep small businesses open because now we have money that we can reinvest back in our communities. But very clear and certainly a caution that I have, you know, even with the motion in terms of saying nothing less than 46 is paragraph five and looking at regional differences and building on our social safety net. So I take the point about distinct needs and those with disabilities. You mentioned Sheila Regeer from the Basic Income Network of Canada. And when quoted in the media on Motion 46, she did say, we have to redesign and reprofile the programs we have. And so I think that does take us in part to a conversation about, are there existing federal programs, whether through EI, or I mentioned the Canada Workers Benefit, potentially the GST tax credit or others that can be reprofiled to a larger guaranteed livable basic income and then put it on the table to your point are there going to be savings down the road how do we estimate and cost out those savings i've spoken previously to evelyn forger and her work suggested out of that dolphin basic income experiment in manitoba that there was an an eight percent reduction in healthcare use and then those accessing the healthcare system, which obviously would be a great cost saving considering even at the federal level, we spend over 10% of the federal budget towards healthcare. So you mentioned criminal justice as well, but there are so many different areas where we could talk from a, a cost and benefit perspective. And then this bottoms out, I think, and which is why I appreciate the human rights lens that you bring to this, because ultimately it bottoms out in we need to do this as a matter of dignity and human rights. So once we have the final analysis of what this is going to cost in addition, even if it doesn't cost out perfectly in terms of savings, this is something we need to do as a matter of dignity. And so let's make sure we then find the resources to pay for it. Yeah, 100%. Bravo, let's get it done. <laughs> okay, so then so then the question of getting it done, and, and I mentioned working across party lines, and, and obviously there's obviously some strength out of our Liberal caucus in the wake of our recent policy process. You've got your motion and you've got a lot of backers in the NDP caucus. The Green Party had this in their platform. You say you've got a block member. I've spoken to Sebastian Lemire previously, who has been quite supportive. Yes. I'm not sure if that's the block member yes. you're referencing. Yes. Uh, he's great. It I've is, been on yeah, the, the, the industry committee with him and, and he's excellent. And 
in the conservative caucus, I'm not sure how many people publicly supportive. There are some like Bruce who, who, who may be more quietly supportive. And there are former conservative elected officials or appointed officials as, as parliamentarians in the course of the Senate. We've seen Obviously, former conservative Senator Hugh Siegel, who's been a, a lifelong advocate of a minimum floor below which no one should fall. And even Brian Mulroney, former conservative prime minister in June, wrote an op-ed in The Globe to say, and this should be taken seriously, pointing to Hugh Siegel's work. So there seems to be some room for cross-party support, which then takes us to the throne speech. And I wondered, are you optimistic that your party will make this a priority in pushing mine to adopt? some language about a permanently strengthened social safety net or a basic income language in the yeah. throne speech? Well, 100%, I put forth a motion on August the 12th. I already have over 38,000 signatures. People want this right now. People are and families are tired of waiting from government announcement to government announcement to know their fate. Like it's getting, from my perspective, totally, totally uh, abusive to people's mental health. Like people need to know what's going to happen after two months, especially in a pandemic where everything is so uncertain. We've lost all of our stability. People deserve to have stability. Uh, so absolutely, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that all of our parties have big asks. Now is a critical juncture. And, and if there was ever a time where I felt this was possible, it is now. And quite frankly, I don't like minority governments for my stress in terms of going in an election, but they work. It forces people to work together. We have an opportunity to do really good things uh, for folks in our riding that voted for us. So absolutely, you know, I, I would be, be lying if I said that I was hoping that it wasn't part of the ass. I certainly am. But if not, I come from the movement. I believe in the movement. And whatever parties choose to do, movements move and they move governments. I know that. I've been doing it my whole life. So I feel like we're already winning the movement. And that's why I call this motion the people's motion, because it really is not my motion. In fact, it is a motion that's been developed with the movement. We have an opportunity and a platform right now to push the government to do the right thing. And I'm glad we have folks uh, in the government, including yourself, that are more, a little bit more progressive and are trying to push progressive ideas. We do live in a moment where many Canadians, I think, are reflecting on lessons learned in the course of this pandemic. And there are many lessons, I think, that are learned. And we can point to the need for stronger labor protections for migrant workers. We can point to the need to make sure people live in dignity in, in, in our nursing homes and, and more. And we can point to systemic racism and, and the, the impact upon the labor force participation of women as a result of this pandemic. And there have been unequal and disproportionate impacts in the course of this pandemic on, on women and people of color. One big lesson, obviously, that many have realized is that our social safety net wasn't fit for purpose. Millions of Canadians would have been left outside of the EI system in the course of this pandemic if the federal government had not stepped in with the CERB and then it continued to extend the CERB. And the EI reform package, I hope, provides that economic stability for a six-month period at least so people aren't stressing from month to month. Now, you mentioned a minority parliament being an opportunity. So in the course of my initial speech in this parliament, I pointed to the Pearson years and how much they were able to accomplish in a minority parliament, big ideas from healthcare to Canada pension plan. 
do you think this is one of those moments we have a minority government and if your party decides to push this and if enough within my caucus decide to push this do you think this is one moment where we can seize the day and this is something that we can look back on years from now and say we were able to do something big and and something lasting absolutely if there was ever a time where we could push something great and really push an agenda that focuses on people now is the time and I think things have changed. I totally support a living minimum wage. That has not changed for me with with a guaranteed livable basic income. I don't think it has to be one or the others. No, they're complementary if, if done right. Yeah. When the EI system was put in place, or even, you know, understanding the whole ideas around neoliberalism, right? I mean, they talk about the feudalism and the abuse of peasants, right? And, and, and the abuse of the workers. I mean, it goes back to that, that the analysis. Here's the problem with it. Where are Indigenous people in that analysis? Like, they weren't even part of that analysis and discussion. Where were women who were being battered? So when we talk about Indigenous voices and and a basic income, and I, I asked Murray Sinclair when, when I had him on if he's supporting, he said, yes, I also want additional supports for Indigenous communities, but in general terms, I support a guaranteed livable basic income. Have there been Indigenous voices coming to the table in support of Indigenous organizations coming to the table in support of this idea yeah. of a basic income? So National Chief uh, Belgard does support the idea. He's waiting for a chief's assembly so that they can do a joint uh, chief's resolution. But he said, you can tell people that I verbally support your motion 46. That's a huge endorsement. Grand Chief uh, Daniels uh, from Manitoba has supported it. It's part of one of the calls to justice, in fact, in the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. Poverty is a violent human rights violation. Poverty is violence. I tire, and I'm not even living it, because I'm living with a lot of privilege, to walk down and see my neighbors living in encampments. I spoke to a woman who said this to me because I went to visit the encampment, see how people are doing, like we're in a pandemic. And, you know, we have people in urban centers that don't even have a place to regularly hand wash. You need a home to self-isolate, to physically distance. They don't even have a home. And she said, you know, I worked. I've worked. I've paid for EI. I've even been on welfare. I paid for these programs. So damn rights, I should get the CERB. Not everybody can work. People with mental health issues, maybe they can do well working a part-time job, but maybe it's too much to work a full-time job. And does that mean they should live in poverty? Are we going to say, hey, grandma, get to work, get to work, grandma? Or are we going to give seniors what they need to make sure they're not living in poverty? So some of these discussions are really limited when you limit to just talking about a livable minimum wage. Like, where do people with mental health issues or people who've been totally discriminated against in the labor market or had legislation like the Indian Act that limited and completely excluded participation in the labor market, BIPOC, uh, disabled persons, senior citizens, people with mental health, people that when the EI uh, system was developed, weren't even part of the discussion. And we see those gaps now during the pandemic. We see those glaring gaps and we have to do better and we can pay for it. It's about choices and and I'm choosing people. And I know there's a whole movement of people that are choosing people that are tired of corporations getting all these breaks, a MasterCard 50 million bucks, Loblaws 12 million bucks. I mean, like this is where our money is going. And in the meantime, 
people are falling in the streets because they are not being looked after. We have and, to do And better. as someone who is not a huge fan of corporate welfare, although I do think there's a role for all levels of government in some respects to invest, say, in clean technology, to yeah. invest in growing the Canadian economy where government investments are necessarily in early days, especially research and development. But when it comes to choices and we face a choice as between, you mentioned some smaller investments and people can question those investments, but they don't really, they're not at a scale at which we could say, well, let's cancel those investments and and let's invest in people instead. And I find when we talk about choices, that's actually where the most articulate detractors of a basic income lie. So when I see conservative, you know, sort of trolls on Twitter reply to my comments in support of a basic income to say, oh, this is communism. Okay, that's easy to dismiss. And it's easy to say this is about dignity. And here's a way to, to design the system to ensure that there's always an incentive to work. And this is about really human rights. And yes, here are ways that we can afford it. And we should have that more serious granular debate in, in the months ahead. But other advocates take a very different tact. And they're usually very progressive advocates that say, there's an opportunity cost argument here where if we're going to spend tens of billions of dollars, these advocates say, well, in comparison to those tens of billions of dollars you could spend on a basic income, you could spend billions of dollars on universal pharmacare and billions of dollars on universal childcare. And you could not only try to tack a basic income on existing services, build out affordable housing, make sure we're building more and, and supporting people on housing. And you mentioned folks in isolation, we're making sure that people are are housed in, in a serious way and we're providing them supports so that they can properly isolate. How do you address the critics who say you are putting all of your eggs in a basic income basket and it's going to be very, very costly? And as a matter of opportunity costs, you could be investing those dollars much more wisely in services. I think that's a reasonable uh, debate, but why does it have to be one or the other? Like we know we are the only country in the world with a single payer healthcare system without a pharmacare system attached. And we know if you buy prescriptions in bulk, it's actually would save money in the healthcare system. Why does it have to be one or the other? We know that when you invest in a universal childcare system, that it helps build the economy. I think we have to stop talking about this choice or another when we're talking about human rights and dignity. So why are we talking about these matters always as one or the other? Is Should we do this or should we do a guaranteed minimum, livable minimum wage? I say we need both, but we also have to accommodate those individuals that are not able to work. There are some individuals that are suffering from severe mental health and trauma. It's not a result of laziness. It's, it's severe mental health and trauma. They can't have a full-time job but they should still live in dignity. And in fact, we should be investing to make sure that they have proper supports so that they're not struggling on the streets, walking aimlessly with no support. Like, why do we talk about things in boxes? And I think we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're at a critical juncture. And now is the time for us to reimagine a world that really honors uh, human rights and dignity. And as a country that purports to lift up human rights, I would argue that we actually don't. Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling uh, to immediately stop racially discriminating against First Nations kids, case in point, or the fact that poverty and homelessness is a norm in this country and that the response has been incremental justice. We need to change these systems. If we are seriously doing our jobs as member of parliaments to lift up our constitution and the charter. Our politics has certainly at times been defined by incrementalism, and this moment does seem, and rightly so, to demand more. Now, that incrementalism has provided great benefits insofar as over the last 
five years, we've seen pre-pandemic over 800,000 folks helped out of poverty in part because we increased the guaranteed income supplement for seniors. We And by the way, just to frame conversation on seniors benefits, the federal government does spend $55 billion a year on OAS and GIS, a significant portion of federal spending towards a social safety net for seniors. Obviously, there are still many seniors that live in poverty. We spend $25 billion now on the Canchal benefit. We increased the Canchal benefit significantly, of course, as well, which which had a, a significant impact. So 300,000 kids out of poverty. So I would say in some ways, my message to my own government has been, you've moved in the right direction. CERB and the EI reform transition package are excellent measures. There are still some gaps, but they are excellent measures and li- they're lifelines to people. Now let's make sure we we take what we have done, which is significant, and we increase our ambition and we make these structural changes that we've made in the course of this pandemic, we make them permanent so that there is a social safety net that is then fit for purpose for the 21st century. You've come at this as a longtime anti-poverty activist. I have to say my interest, and I chair the All-Party Anti-Poverty Caucus and took it over when Senator Eagleton stepped down. He retired, obviously. I come at it in some ways from a more philosophical point of view, where if we knew nothing about one another, if we knew nothing about ourselves and how we were going to be born, we didn't know our own abilities. We didn't know where we would be born, who our parents would be. We knew nothing about ourselves. How would we negotiate a collective insurance agreement to say, how, is, how are we going to develop the rules of our society to make sure that we, not knowing how we are going to land and how we're going to be born, would all be looked after? And I think we would quickly arrive at a collective insurance agreement that looks a lot like a basic income. But how did you begin your career, as it were, as an anti-poverty activist? Well, I think like more human rights. I think, you know, when you're born an indigenous person uh, in the country, that's a political act. Your whole birth is a political act. I'm an Indigenous woman. I don't have the same rights, never mind as other Canadians, other women, according to the Indian Act. I think when you've been privileged with human rights, you know, it's a choice. But there's many people in this country that were not born privileged with human rights. And they're often not part of the circles and the discussions. Or when we do stand up for human rights, we're often radicalized or, you know, when really we're asking to have the same human rights and dignity as everybody else, which is still a struggle in this country. And, you know, my parents uh, have a very interesting history. So so my mom was a Chinese Lakota woman from Saskatchewan, grew up in child welfare, ended up in care at age of five to 18, became an award-winning psychiatric nurse. I mean, just like, just a a really power social worker, clinical social worker. My father was a Holocaust survivor. He was the only surviving child after the war. Five survivors in total came to Canada. So I come from genocides from different parts of the world. Not only was my birth significant political act, when you're born into a family and you're the descendant of two uh, very powerful people, very gentle and kind, that uh, I think survived it by fueling their experience and, and then living a life of activism. I was born in the movements. I've been working in the movement since I was a kid. I was with my parents fighting the good fight. I don't remember a time, and I'm almost 50 now, where I haven't been part of the struggle. But a couple of years ago, actually, maybe one time we'll have more chance to talk. It was when I was about 40, I turned 40, you know, because I've always been battling the human rights, you know, like it's been kind of a focus of my life. And then I was like, why am I doing this? Because when you're born into it, it's just what you do. And it's a struggle. And it's the struggle. And I thought, 
I'm fighting for the right to joy, the right to joy for myself, for my son, for my family, for my community. It's about ensuring people have what they need so they can actually live joy. And, you know, I look down the street and people are not living joy. They are in pain. They are struggling. They are living in poverty. They don't have a home. And in a country as rich as Canada, I find that abhorrent. I find the fact that we can talk about incremental justice while we willfully watch people struggle and suffer, I find it privileged and disgusting. We're in a pandemic. I have a a motion 46. I thought, that's it. Never mind these middle class discussions. People are struggling and we need to take bold actions to fight poverty in this country and ensure that people are looked after properly. And ensure that while we can't expect everyone to have the same, we can't expect equality of outcomes. Absolutely, we can demand and we should expect equality of respect. And that equality of respect, I think, is in many respects contingent upon this idea of a guaranteed livable basic income. My, my last question for you, as someone who has occasionally disagreed with his own party at times, sometimes in a more public-facing <laughs> way, you I read an interview of yours where you said, I need to be true to who I am. I think that can be really difficult in politics, but I've often thought this old Vonnegut quote, you know, be careful who you pretend to be because you are who you pretend to be. And so you do have to be very true to who you are in the course yeah. of this profession, even more so in some respects, and, and always be on guard for that. You also have called yourself a community voice. And, and in the course of this conversation, you even said it's not about you, it's about those around you and, and the people who power the movement. Are there moments, even in early days since the last election in October, October of 2019, where you have disagreed with the party? Or are you challenged in any way by the really dominant team dynamic to caucus and party politics? Well, when I was elected, I had four uh, very clear measuring tools. Uh, I've been very honest with the caucus and the party. And here's what they are. If you want me to support, does it support human rights? Does it support Indigenous rights? Are we going to meet climate targets? And are you asking me to break the rule of law? Because it happens all the time in the House of Commons. Votes happen that totally go against our Constitution and the Charter. And debates happen that totally do not support the Constitution and the Charter. So I took an oath, and I take that oath very seriously. I don't think it's any secret that, uh, you know, I do have uh, different views at times, uh, because those are my four measuring tools. And uh, I have to stay true to who I am, but I also have to stay true to a movement You know, I was elected by the movement that trusts me to do the right thing. And I don't think, I know politics get a bad rap, but I do think that you can be an ethical politician and you can be truthful and honest. So I might not get elected again, but I can tell you, that's what I've been doing. I'm very honest about who I am. People know I'm, you know, a self-declared socialist. I'm very proud of it. My parents were socialists. My grandparents were socialists. Everybody I know is socialist. You know, I'm fierce about climate justice and the climate emergency. I will not compromise because it also intersects with, with fundamental Indigenous human rights that are articulated in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so I have always clearly taken a stand, whether it be with the Wet'suwet'en, Sightsee Dam, Muskrat Falls. I take stands based on that, not to be uh, rebellious, but part of who I am is always standing firm on human rights and dignity. And I will not waver on that because I have to sleep and I have to get up in the morning and feel good about 
who I am. And it seems to be working. I could be wrong. <laughs> I don't you know. It's worked out okay for me for five years. I don't know. You, you never know, though. You, there's, there's always the risk. You, you, you say something you believe, and it's the it's the entirely wrong thing. But so, I mean, I think so long as you are true to yourself, and, and you and I, I don't think uh, we'll agree on everything, but you and I, I think, take the same kind of approach to politics. And I think it's really important to take the view that I may not be doing this after the next election. And I'm certainly not going to make decisions now for the purposes of the next election. The decisions I make now are about something bigger than that. I look forward to supporting Motion 46. And what I really look forward to is a very specific debate in some ways, because I think we are at the point where enough Canadians support in rough terms, this notion that we need to reinvent our social safety net and that it wasn't fit for purpose. And then what does that permanent social safety net look like? So your motion calls for that kind of debate and work. The resolution out of our Liberal Caucus calls for that debate and work. And I think we really, in the fall in particular, need to then bring experts around the table to sit with us and to say, here are some very specific proposals. Here's what they are going to cost in the short term. Here's what they're going to cost outside of the pandemic when we return to some sense of normalcy. Here are the different ways that we can potentially afford it. Here are the costs that we might save down the road in justice and in health and otherwise. And and we can really have a a very detailed and specific conversation about what the plan looks like going forward. Because you and I will agree in rough terms now that we need to get to a place like that. But the more detailed we can be in the months ahead, I think the more successful we will ultimately be. Yeah, 100%. So I thank you so much. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe at uncommons.ca for future episodes. Please leave a positive review, hopefully a positive review, on whatever platform you happen to listen to this on. Share it with your friends. And remember to let me know future guests and topics on social media at BEYNate. Thanks so much.